0: Hello and welcome to the summer edition of Salt and Light Radio. I'm Pedro Guevara Man, and today we go to Edmonton, Alberta for Nothing More Beautiful, a series of catechesis and witness talks that aims to renew the faithful's relationship with Christ. The name Nothing More Beautiful is taken from a quote from Pope Benedict XVI where he said, There is nothing more beautiful than to be surprised by the gospel, by the encounter with Christ. There is nothing more beautiful than to know Him and to speak to others of our friendship with Him. Nothing More Beautiful is taped at St. Joseph's Basilica in Edmonton. Today we bring you the third session, which was recorded live in April 2009. We will hear first from the Archbishop of Denver, Colorado, the Most Reverend Charles Chaput. And following the catechesis session with Archbishop Chaput, we will hear from Sultan Light producer Mary Rose Bacani Archbishop Chaput is a member of the Order of Friars Minor Capuchin and he is a celebrated author his latest book Render unto Caesar Serving the Nation by Living Our Catholic Beliefs in Political Life and now let's listen to Archbishop Chaput of Denver Today's topic is Our New Life in Jesus Christ
1: I want to begin with a passage from St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians it sets the stage for our conversation tonight here it is for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What makes these verses important? Paul is the greatest missionary the world has ever seen or will see. He talks with absolute conviction. But the pivotal words in this passage, in fact the pivotal words in Paul's entire life, come at the very end last of all as to one untimely born he also appeared to me the Catholic faith is not simply a collection of doctrines and ideas or a body of knowledge or even a system of beliefs although all these things are important at its root Christianity is an experience a life-changing personal experience of the risen Lord Jesus. Everything else in Saint Paul and everything else in our life as Catholics flows from that personal encounter with Jesus Christ crucified but risen from the dead. If we truly seek him then we will always find him. But when we find him. We need to be ready for the consequences because nothing about our lives can ever be the same. Nothing. Let me share a story with you to explain what I mean. It's about a young man named Franz who lived about 60 years ago in a small village in Austria. Franz was the illegitimate son of a farmer who died later in World War II, World War I. He was a wild teenager. Local people recall that he was the first one in his village to drive a motorcycle and it's not because he drove safely or kept the posted speed limits that they remembered that. Franz was a leader of a gang that used to fight rival gangs in neighboring towns with knives and chains. He was something of a cad, too, and a womanizer. He got a girl pregnant and was forced to leave town. People said he went to work for a while in an iron mine. For reasons nobody knows, Franz came back a changed man. He had always gone to church, even during his wildest days. But when he returned, he was a serious Catholic not just a Sunday Catholic. He started making payments to support the child he had fathered out of marriage. He married a good Catholic woman and settled down to become a good farmer, a good husband, and a good father, raising three children and serving as a lay leader in his local parish. I'll tell you the rest of the story later, but I want to quote something Franz wrote in a letter to his godson this is what he said, I can say from my own experience how painful life often is when one lives as a halfway Christian. It's more like vegetating than living. I remembered Franz when I started thinking about tonight's topic our new life in Christ. Believers today are relentlessly tempted to accept halfway Christianity, to lead a double life, to be one person when we're in church or at prayer and somebody different when we're with our friends or our families or at work or when we talk about politics. Part of this temptation comes from normal social pressure. We don't want to stand out. We don't want to seem different. So we keep our religious beliefs to ourselves. It's as if we've internalized the old adage, never talk about religion or politics in polite company. I've never accepted that kind of thinking myself. Religion, politics, social justice, these are precisely the things we should be talking about because nothing else really matters. Few things could be more important than religious faith, which deals with the ultimate meaning of life and politics which deals with how we should organize our lives together for justice and the common good. These are the things we need to talk about tonight if we really want a new life, a whole and undivided life in Jesus Christ. I think it's important though that we start with a kind of diagnosis of the culture we're living in and the challenges it forces us to face. The reason is simple. We're living in the first age in human history when entire societies are organized around this principle of a double life. The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor calls our period the secular age. How we got to this moment is far too big a subject for us tonight. The point is that in just a few centuries We've gone from living in a world where it was virtually impossible not to believe in God to living in a world where belief in God doesn't seem to be necessary or to make any difference. Most men and women today can live their whole lives as if God didn't exist. Of course in the West, and by the West I mean all developed Western-style democracies, not just Canada and the United States. In the West, we're allowed to believe in God and even to pray and worship together. But we're constantly lectured by the mass media to never impose our religious viewpoints on our neighbors. This curious idea is always framed as a very reasonable and enlightened way to live. You're free to believe what you want to believe. I'm free to believe what I want to believe. And the government agrees not to tell us, either of us, what to believe and what not to believe. But things really aren't as reasonable and enlightened as they seem. Here's a recent example. Pope Benedict visited Africa in March. On the plane a reporter asked him about the AIDS epidemic and the church's disapproval of condom use. Now there aren't many nations or organizations in the world today that have poured as much money and human effort into the fight against AIDS in Africa as a Catholic Church. That's just a statistical fact. So when the Pope answers a question like this he's speaking not just from theological opinion but with real knowledge about conditions on the ground. And Benedict said that promoting condom use doesn't help. In fact it does just the opposite. Nobody listened to his answer beyond that point. It was all over the media for the next several days how conservative this pope was and how he was sacrificing millions of Africans with AIDS on the altar of the church's rigid moral dogma. By one account, more than 4,000 articles were filed on that subject. And what's astounding is the uniformity of the criticism that the pope and the church are backward and medieval and the Catholic beliefs are a threat to the public health. What happened? The Pope challenged one of the cultish little orthodoxies of our time, the cult of the condom, and the underlying ideology that sexual intercourse is a fundamental human need that can never be questioned, not even in situations where pursuing that need could cost your life or the life of someone you love so public discussion gets shut down. Nobody stops to consider that what the Pope said wasn't just sectarian religious belief, but that it actually makes good practical sense. Giving people condoms offers them a false sense of security and encourages the very behaviors that lead to the transmission of AIDS. What's even more frustrating is to know that the leading AIDS prevention research scientists in Africa actually agreed with the Pope. You never know that by what you read in the media.
0: You're listening to Archbishop Charles Chaput of Denver speaking on Our New Life in Christ during the Nothing More Beautiful series from the Archdiocese of Edmonton on Salt and Light Radio, the summer edition.
1: So we're taught to think that we live in an open society that respects freedom of religion and the free exchange of different ideas. But we don't, and we shouldn't kid ourselves. We may not be too far from the day when it will be legally discouraged to hold certain moral views and illegal to refuse to do certain things we find to be evil the question then becomes how are we going to live in this new world? How can we lead a new life in Christ in an unbelieving age? We can't really answer that question until we get something straight about what it means to be a Christian and that means first getting something straight about Jesus Christ this is another one of the byproducts of our secular times we don't really quite know what to think about Jesus anymore why because our culture has given Jesus a makeover we've remade him in the image and likeness of generic compassion today he's not the Lord the Son of God but more like an enlightened humanist nice guy The problem is this, if Jesus isn't Lord, if He isn't the Son of God, then He can't do anything for us. Then the gospel is just one more or less interesting philosophy of life. And that's my first point about how we need to live in a secular age. We need to trust the gospels and we need to trust the church that gives us the Gospels. We need to truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Mary, true God and true man, the one who holds the words of eternal life. If we aren't committed to that truth, then nothing else I say tonight can make any sense. Here's a second point. Jesus didn't come down from heaven to tell us to go to church on Sunday. He didn't die on the cross and rise from the dead so that we would pray more at home and be a little kinder to our next door neighbors. The one thing even non-believers can see is that the Gospels aren't compromised documents. Jesus wants all of us and not just on Sundays. He wants wants us to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, and all our mind. And he wants us to love our neighbor as ourselves. In other words, with a love that's total. And we need to take Christ at his word. We We need to love him like our lives depend on it right now and without excuses remember the man in Scripture who told Jesus I'm ready to be your disciple but first I need to plan my father's funeral the way Jesus responds is very blunt and rather disturbing he says leave the dead to bury their own dead follow me and proclaim the kingdom of God Of course he's not commanding us to show disrespect to our parents. What Jesus is saying is that there can be no more urgent priority in our lives than following him and proclaiming his kingdom. My third point flows from the first two. Being a follower of Jesus Christ is not just one among many different aspects of your daily life. Being a Christian is who you are, period. And being a Christian means your life has a mission. It means striving every day to be a better follower, to become more like Jesus in your thoughts and actions. Blessed Charles de Foucauld once said, God calls all the souls he has created to love him with her whole being. But he does not ask all souls to show their love by the same works, to climb heaven by the same ladder, to achieve goodness in the same way. What sort of work then must I do? Which is my road to heaven? God expects great things from us. That's why he made us love him and to serve one another and to play our personal part in bringing about the kingdom of love. So you have to ask yourselves the same questions that Blessed Charles asked himself. What does God want you to be doing? How does he want you to follow Christ? Now, how do you go about finding the answers to these questions? by talking to God humbly and honestly in prayer, by getting to know Christ better through daily reading and praying over the Gospels, by opening yourself up to the graces He gives us in the sacraments. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So it's not about you choosing what you want to do with your life. It's about discovering how God wants you to use your life to spread the good news of His love and His kingdom. Blessed Charles, by the way, is one of the great stories of the 20th century. He was a Frenchman who lived most of his life like the prodigal son, squandering his inheritance on alcohol, women, and dead-end pleasures. But when he came to know Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, his life changed forever. He felt called to follow Christ literally, setting off on foot to Nazareth to devote himself to a humble life of manual labor, prayer, and charity. Some years later, his imitation of Christ led him to the Sahara Desert, where he lived as a hermit and eventually died a martyr's death. Now, most of you will find your own road to heaven starting a little closer to home. That's appropriate. In fact, it's exactly what God intends. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus meets and reveals himself to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They were not heading for Jerusalem or Moscow or Ottawa or Beijing or Washington, D.C. They're on their way home. Emmaus, a small town whose location we can't even know today. Likewise, in the Gospel of Mark, the angel tells the women at the empty tomb that Jesus is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him as he told you. Galilee was an obscure and unimportant place, but it was the apostles' home. In other words, Christ reveals himself to his followers in their ordinary lives. Jesus meets us on the way, on the way of life. And we find him again and again in the breaking of the bread. And as we pray over the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, and all of scripture. Our encounter with him in our personal circumstances opens our minds to the meaning of all these things and Jesus wants us to grow where we're planted. So your task is to preach the gospel with your lives no matter where you are or whatever you find yourself doing. Going to school, working, raising children, making a home. One final point and it's this. Love the church. Love her as your mother and teacher. Help to build her up to purify her life and work. We all get angry when we see human weakness and sin in the church. But we need to remember always that the church is much much more than the sum of her human parts. The church is the bride of Christ. The spirit and new life that worked in Jesus Christ and his apostles is still at work in the church. Jesus promised his apostles that when they teach, it will be he who is teaching. That when they forgive sins, it will be he who, he who forgives. That when they say his words, this is my body, the bread and wine will become his body and blood. Jesus doesn't forget his promises. For the church is Jesus Christ is until the end of the age and we always want to be where Christ is because there is no way home to God except through him so love the church and this is crucial know and revere what the church teaches what the church teaches is what Christ wants you and everyone else to know for our own good and for the salvation of the world so know what the church teaches so that you can live those teachings and share those teachings with others. The leaders of today's secularized societies like to fancy themselves as true humanists and humanitarians. But these same societies justify killing millions of babies in the womb and dismembering embryos in the laboratory. We dispatch the handicapped and the elderly and call it death with dignity our very language has become subverted. The family is no longer the covenant communion of a man and a woman that leads to new life and hence the future of society. In fact there are so few babies being born now in developed Western style countries that we have to wonder whether our civilization has lost its will to survive. Only the church stands against these inhuman trends. Only the church stands against these inhuman trends in society. And it's your mission as laymen and laywomen to ensure that Christ's teaching is preached and explained and defended at every level of our society, in politics, in the workplace, in the culture. This takes real courage. There are all sorts of pressures subtle and not so subtle, to sell out Jesus, to water down or diminish his gospel, to pick and choose among his teachings. But we can't do that. Make a promise to Jesus Christ never to contradict the church's teachings by your words or actions. Only the truth can set people free That truth is Jesus Christ. So, if we truly love our neighbors, we will want them to know the truth, the whole truth, not just the part of it that makes them feel good and doesn't challenge them to change. So, it's not possible for real Christians to lead a double life. Our whole way of thinking and acting needs to be transformed by our faith, or we make ourselves hypocrites. Like our friend Franz once said, being a halfway Christian is like being a vegetable. It's not really alive. It's barely in existence. And that reminds me that it's time to tell tell you the rest of the story of Franz. Germany was invaded or Germany rather invaded Austria in 1938. Unlike most of his neighbors, Franz refused to cooperate in any way with the new National Socialist regime, because he considered Hitler to be an enemy of Christ and the Church. For five years he waged a personal campaign of moral resistance, but finally he was arrested for refusing an order to enlist in the German army while awaiting his sentence many people including his family and his local priest urged him to pay lip service to the regime and thereby spare his life Franz wouldn't do it so 66 summers ago on August 9, 1943 Franz died on a Nazi guillotine today we remember him as Blessed Franz Jägerstädter, a martyr for the truth that a Catholic can never lead a double life, that there can be no such thing as a halfway Christian. Blessed Franz wrote beautiful letters to his wife from prison. In one of them, he talked about the great martyrs of the church. He wrote, If we hope to reach our goal someday, then we too must become heroes of the faith. For as long as we fear men more than God, we will never make the grade. Another time he wrote, the important thing is that we do not let a single day go by in vain without putting it to good use for eternity. That's the heart of the matter for anyone who wants to be a real Christian. That's the path to a new life in Christ, put every day to good use for eternity. And the time to begin that is now. Thank you and God bless you all.
0: Listening to Salt and Light Radio heard Saturdays at 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 Pacific on the Catholic Channel, Sirius 159 and XM 117, and on the Internet at saltandlighttv.org slash radio. I'm Pedro Guevara Man, and tonight we bring you the third of the Nothing More Beautiful series from the Archdiocese of Edmonton. Today's topic is Our New Life in Christ. And we just heard the catechesis session by Archbishop Charles Chaput of Denver, Colorado. The witness talk will be given now by Salton Light Television producer Mary Rose Bacani.
2: I was recently invited to speak about my work in media in front of a classroom of grade 12 high school girls. And I had just finished showing these girls clips of what I do as a producer, reporter and host at Salton Light Television. I was at that point where I had to talk about how I got to be successful in what I do. And I asked them, have any of you ever experienced discrimination? Five hands went up. How about bullying? Around three hands went up. And how about depression? Five hands this time. I sympathize, I told them. I've experienced some of these things too. But I can tell you from experience that no matter how broken you are, God can pick up those broken pieces and give you new life in Jesus Christ. And that's the theme of my talk tonight. I'm 33 years old. I'm not married at this stage and I'm still living with my parents. And to top it all off, I'm in love with my overweight cat that looks like a raccoon. (laughs) But the truth is, I am really living the most graceful days of my life, and I have never been happier. Whenever people ask me how I got to this stage in my life and in my relationship with God, I usually tell them about how I responded to three important calls. And the first call came when I was a 19-year-old student at the University of Toronto, on a retreat I wasn't interested in. The second call came when I was a 23-year-old temporary kindergarten teacher in a small town, and the last call came when I was a 27-year-old college student in California looking into law school. Before I get to the story of my first call as a 19-year-old, I have to describe the teenage me. First of all, I couldn't care less about the Pope And World Youth Days. Secondly, I thought that wearing my exercise clothes to Sunday Mass and sleeping through it was okay. And finally, I really wanted to find any excuse I could find to avoid the daily family rosary at night. So basically I was your normal teenager. However, although I was born in Canada, I lived my adolescent years in the Philippines. And for any of you who are Filipinos or who know about the Philippines, the Philippines has a very rich Catholic heritage. So my parents raised me to pray the family rosary daily and to go to Sunday mass regularly. And in fact, the, um, the Daughters of St. Paul bookstore downtown was a regular hangout for my dad and me. And my parents were able to raise all five of their kids at the time on one source of income and one source of strength. Their Catholic faith. Now the year 1987 brought with it political and economic instability in the Philippines, so much so that my family, my parents, decided to uproot the whole family and return to Canada. And I was 12 at the time, and I remember grade 7 kids in my class coming up to me and saying, hey, why don't you go back on your refugee boat and go back to the Philippines? And the fact that I was so well-versed in the English language and could spell big words didn't really help me become any more popular in class, so there you go. And as I grew older, I noticed how the Canadian culture fostered equal rights, freedom of thought, speech, religion. So I was taught one thing at home, but once I went out the door, I could really feel the force of secularism and free-mindedness sucking me in. I was also getting into my teenage years, and I was struggling to find my identity as all teenagers do. So by high school, my faith was really shaken. An emptiness in my heart started to get bigger and bigger. And by the time I was a first-year student at the University of Toronto, a lack of interest in life and empty depression started to take over. I lost my ability to concentrate on my studies, much to my humiliation, since I was assured that I was an intelligent young woman, but I couldn't concentrate. I didn't want to be around my family. And I was quickly, very quickly, starting to despise my Catholic heritage. I'll never forget the Christmas of 1994. I was, it was near the end of my first semester at the University of Toronto, and I had a serious crush on this guy at church. Um, and so he came up to me one day after Sunday mass and he said, Hey, Mary Rose, do you want to drive down with me and some of my friends to Connecticut for a Christmas retreat? And I'm sure I had lots of homework and part-time work hours scheduled, but really what I had in my mind was this vision of these 12 hours in the car with him on the drive to Connecticut and then the 12 hours back. And so I quickly said, sure, I don't have anything planned this Christmas. So, we went on the, on the retreat. And I was so excited during this whole trip, but my, excite, my, my excitement was cut short when, he, when we arrived at the retreat house. And that was because he failed to tell me that there was a separate retreat house for the guys about two hours away from where I was staying. <laughs> so, so once he dropped me off and left, I reluctantly had to participate in this retreat. And I remember being in a classroom waiting for the next talk and in comes this really distinguished looking consecrated woman from Random Christian. and Random Christi. Christie is the lay apostolic movement of the church. And I remember I was just bored, slumped over my desk, my head buried in my arms, my eyes half shut in boredom in my tracksuit, my track pants, and I was just there until one of the girls on retreat asked a question, she raised her hand trying to get the attention of that consecrated woman, and she said, I'd like to know why, um, why you love Jesus Christ. And then came the moment that began my resurrection in Christ. She blushed as if she was being asked about the greatest romance of her life. And I couldn't believe this. I didn't know you could have a personal relationship with Christ. You could fall in love with Jesus Christ. Why didn't anybody tell me this thing before? So what I did was I ran up to my room and I cried during this retreat, after this talk. I wanted to have what she had, and I was determined to have it. So I thought, is it possible God could be calling me? I wanted to give God the benefit of the doubt and follow him. I had no other choice, really. I was depressed. What else can you do? If you can't turn to God, who else can you turn to? And so at the age of 19, at a retreat I didn't care about, I made a decision to follow Christ, not knowing completely what this meant. So on September 1st, 1995, at the age of 20, after finishing only one year of university at the University of Toronto, and leaving my parents and my six siblings behind, I answered God's call to be a consecrated member of the Random Christi movement. Just like that. (laughs) And so that's the story of my first strong call, to join the Reign of Christi movement and go through my, what I call, my spiritual boot camp. So in Reign of Christi, I learned about the importance of disciplining the mind and the heart. I learned that the interior life was not about the life of my internal organs, but the life of my soul. Basically, I was learning about the ABCs of the spiritual life, even despite my feelings of depression. I worked really hard to fit into the Regnum Christi life, but in my time there, I never saw on my face the same happiness that I saw on the face of that consecrated woman on my first retreat there. So after three years of living this life and after much discernment and spiritual direction, I realized I had to move on. So it was 1998 by that time, I was 23, and to be honest, I really just felt like I went through a marriage that failed that I wasn't good enough for a husband I tried so hard to please. I also remember being afraid to go back home to Toronto. I never finished university, and I thought, this is going to be hard to find a job. But an opportunity for a smooth transition presented itself. I was offered a temporary job as a kindergarten teacher in a small town. And during that year of teaching, I had the strong feeling that it's time to go back to university, to start applying for university. But after having received such an intense spiritual training, I really couldn't go back to a secular environment much like the University of Toronto. And so I inquired into all the good Catholic colleges and universities I I knew about. Now, of all the information packages I received, there was not one that struck me like lightning the way that the package from Thomas Aquinas College did, and, and it happened like this. I had the envelope, I open it, I look at the pamphlet, and I see these, the beautiful Spanish style architecture in a mountain setting and I thought, wow, this place is amazing. And then they had other documents. I read, I read the solid founding documents, I read about the great books curriculum, I read about the method of learning and discussion inspired by the Greek philosopher Socrates and I thought, double wow, I gotta go to this place. So I immediately called the director of admissions and I told him, this place is impressive, I love this place. And he said, oh, are you applying for admission? I said, no, 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 no. I see how much the tuition fee is and I can't afford that. There's no way I would go for that college, but I just wanted to let you know, this is like a dream. And then he said, well, why don't you apply and see what happens? We offer financial aid for students who deserve to be here but can't afford it. Okay, so I applied. But even before I heard back from the college, I knew that I was going to get in. I felt confident that God was calling me to Thomas Aquinas College. And that's the story of my second strong call that came at the age of 23. Now, Thomas Aquinas College was the intellectual boot camp, the toughest intellectual boot camp of my life. I knew what kind of concentration problems I had because of my depression, And so I worked really hard to discipline myself. I would lock myself up in a room to study, pushing myself to read no matter how tired I got. I was working to graduate and I felt that I had to deal with my feelings later so that I could get my degree. And fairly soon I felt like all these feelings were locked inside of me and I was going to burst. And I couldn't have gone through that college program without the help of the campus counselor.
0: You're listening to Salt and Light producer Mary Rose Bacani speaking on the topic Our New Life in Jesus Christ during the Nothing More Beautiful series on Salt and Light Radio.
2: Now this extraordinary college exposed me to a faith that I can know, I can discuss, and I can learn about. But after Thomas Aquinas College what was next? Well I knew that my father was a lawyer in the Philippines And my grandfather, his dad, dad was a famous judge in the Philippines, so I thought, hey, maybe law is the next avenue for me. So I started studying for my LSAT to get into law school. I studied at lunch, at night, whenever I got the chance. But somehow I felt the itch to do something else other than law. And guess what that was? Media. To work in media. The many reasons I thought I could make it in media included the fact that I liked playing newscaster on campus, Um, other people told me I had a good TV presence, while others said, Hey, you have a great voice. But I also felt it had to be Catholic television because of my growing love for my faith. But of course, now that I look back, I was really just experiencing my third strong call. I remember calling up a friend in Toronto saying, you know, it's too bad. Toronto doesn't have a Catholic television station. And I remember this clearly because it was the spring of 2003. I was 28 years old, almost 28 years old, and graduation was one or two months away. But Mary Rose, my friend said, I heard that a Catholic television station is opening up soon. Are you serious? I asked. I am. She said, why don't you check it out? I, I heard something about it, something like salt and light something. So I was again faced with another dilemma. I had been working all this time on my papers so that I could stay in the US, work for a bit, and then go for law school. So going back to Toronto would be turning my back on all that I had been working towards. But I found myself saying to my friend, you know what, I think I'll try it. As soon as I got to Toronto, I checked out Salt and Light Television and I caught their interest. But I was very honest during my interview, I told them, hey, I don't have television experience, but I love to be creative, I love my faith, and with my rigorous liberal education, I can learn anything. So after a two-week internship and a couple of on-camera auditions, I was hired as a full-time producer at Salt and Light Television in September of 2003. So God was now going to work in my emotional life, and he did this by immersing me in a place full of young professionals. I had to work and interact with these young people at least eight hours a day. Now one of them, Richard, was particularly interested in me and I didn't know how to deal with this. I wasn't ready to trust my feelings and I really was hoping that somehow God would just call me back into a consecrated life. So then in 2005, the year I turned 30, my spiritual life reached another level. In May of that year, Father Thomas Rizika, who is the CEO of Salt and Light Television, sent me with Richard to the Holy Land as part of a crew of five. And our mission was to capture my personal pilgrimage in the Holy Land. Now, this trip represents a milestone in my life, and I was really privileged to have been able to record these moments forever in the Salt and Light documentary, Journey of Light. And you can order this by calling one 888 just, I'm just kidding. So I felt God everywhere. I really felt God everywhere in the Holy Land, at the Sea of Galilee, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in a nursing home in Emmaus. And I remember walking outside the church of the primacy of Peter, and I I honestly felt God calling me across the Sea of Galilee, from across the Sea of Galilee. And I I remember taking off my, my shoes so that I could feel as close as possible to the land Jesus walked on. I felt the cold water lapping against my legs, I felt, I ran my fingers through the water, and I felt such a connection with him whom I had grown to love and dedicate my life to. In putting the documentary together with Richard, I began to realize my creative talents. So from then on, I buried myself in my work, looking to experience God in every production I put out until I was practically burnt out near the end of 2006. But I didn't realize then that God was slowly stirring the embers in my heart. In Advent of 2006, Father Thomas Ruzica introduced me to the Monastery of the Sisters Adorers of the Precious Blood in London, Ontario. They are a contemplative community called to enter into God's love and, and his triumph through suffering. Father Ruzica told me about them because he knew I needed a place to get away. But little did he know what part this humble place would play in my new life in Jesus Christ. But I'm actually sure he was hoping I would eventually realize a religious vocation and join these sisters, the sneaky, sneaky Father Rosika that he is. <laughs> so I spent eight days there in prayer and silence during the advent of 2006. And in the silence, God was working away, and he was working most clearly through the priest who was guiding my retreat at the time. At our first meeting, this priest asked me, so why did you come? What are you looking for? And I remember being taken aback. What am I looking for? Cause I never articulated this in my head. So I said, okay, um, I, I, I long for peace. I long to know my vocation in life. I long for freedom to be free from my fears and my insecurities. How's that for a start? And during that retreat, I learned that my feelings of emptiness, had something to do with my emotional distance from my family. After all, I left home when my youngest sister was two and now she was 15. What do I know of her? What memories do I have with my brothers? I have three of them. A few months later, when I was 32, I decided to move back with my family and siblings. And there, gradually, I began to experience a deep healing. I felt accepted and loved by a family who just wanted to create beautiful memories with me. But I still struggled with choosing the right vocation in my life. And I still felt, and I was determined that if I were given another chance, I could live religious life. Stubborn, stubborn, that's how it was. In September of 2008, two colleagues of mine at Salt and Light Television got married to each other. And during that ceremony, I felt for the first time that marriage was not something impossible and unreachable for me. And it was the first time I felt that, so it was an odd feeling. And less than a month later, in October, my little niece was born. And as I held her in my arms, it was really as if my heart had broken open. I fell in love with this baby, a baby so fragile, so little, so trusting, so precious. And so I I felt then that I could be a mother that I could be a wonderful mother. And so slowly, the relationship I had with Richard became stronger. Marriage became a, a topic of conversation more often. But what about this nagging, this nagging question in my head about religious life? So I then decided to go on another retreat at the monastery of the Sisters of Doris of the Precious Blood and to speak to God about this. I stayed for five days this time with the same priest guiding me. When he asked me what I was looking for, I had an answer for him. I was ready. I'm asking God for the courage to love the way he wants me to. And also, I'm asking him to let me know if my vocation is for religious life. And if not, if it's for marriage. And if it's for marriage, if it's with Richard. So, there. So the priest looked at me for a few seconds. And then he said, take some time to look at your whole life. Why don't you divide your life into 10-year segments and look at where love was in those parts of your life. And then even more deeply, he said, then ask God where he was in those moments. So I did exactly what I have done in this talk. I looked at my whole life and where God was moving. But as I did this, surprisingly for me, I felt a great anger welling up inside of me. I was realizing that deep inside my heart, God was always preparing me for marriage. I was just not wanting to look at it. He had taken me from a life of hardship in the Philippines to a new life in Canada. From my growing pains within random Christie to an understanding and appreciation of my Catholic heritage at Thomas Aquinas College. And finally, from a state of uncertainty about life to a state of belonging at Salt and Light Television. But I was angry because I had always wanted the best, the highest, you know? I wanted to be as close to God as possible and religious life is the way to do this. And I said, wouldn't I be better than some religious out there, you know? Am I not more hardworking, more faithful, more loving? Then why not choose me? Why not me? After I expressed my anger, this priest looked at me and said, So, you're thinking about the way you want to love him. Which way is better? I said, Ah, I trapped him. Now he's going to have to say which way is better and higher. But then he said, That's not what it's about. Life is about loving and being loved. Have you allowed Christ to love you? And I was thinking, Have I allowed Christ to love me? That's your answer? That's, that's too simple. But he continued, God loves you in your humanity, in your strengths, and in your weaknesses. He became human for you, didn't he? And then you turn to the story of the washing of the feet in scripture, John chapter 13. In this passage, Peter resists Jesus, who wanted to wash his feet. And for Peter, Jesus can wash the feet of the other disciples, that's fine. But to wash his own feet, that's too much. But it wasn't too much for Jesus. This priest then invited me to reflect. Do I let Jesus wash my feet, wholeheartedly, joyfully basking in the greatness of his love? And then he said, allow him to love you. That has to be your sole concern. Of course, that was the root of my problem and never loved myself. I hated being a human being who had feelings, who could experience pain and sorrow And death and I never fully accepted that God loved me but if I didn't I could never love myself and how could I love other people in return and then he said I'd like to introduce you to a friend of mine Julian of Norway it took her a while to grasp the meaning of God's love too she understood God's love after searching and searching for over 15 years and so he pulled out a book entitled showings And read her words i desired many times to know in what was our lord's meaning and 15 years after and more i was answered in spiritual understanding and it was said what do you wish to know your lord's meaning in this thing know it well love was his meaning who reveals it to you love Why does he reveal it to you? For love. Remain in this and you will know more of the same, but you will never know different without end. The passage continued. So I was taught that love is our Lord's meaning. And I saw very certainly in this and in everything that before God made us, he loved us, which love was never abated and never will be. And in this love, He has done all his works. And in this love, he has made all things profitable. And in this love, our life is everlasting. As he read this, a deep peace and great gratitude flooded my soul. I was so worried about so many things, hurting in so many ways. But that God loves me and all that he does is for love of me. That's all really what I needed to know. I left that retreat feeling as if I had a rebirth, that what I had been praying for for almost 15 years was finally happening. So now I can firmly say that I love my life. I appreciate my beautiful family. I relish and enjoy the wonderful relationships and the great opportunities to create beautiful things at Salt and Light Television. I work towards becoming more and more of a Christ-centered person each day, and I use every TV program and story I work on as an opportunity to share my faith with the world. And so I stand before you tonight, my brothers and sisters, peaceful, happy, and in love with life. I'm 33 years old, soon to be married to Richard, deeply imperfect, and yet greatly loved by God. Thank you for listening.
0: You've been listening to the third of the Nothing More Beautiful series from the beautiful St. Joseph's Basilica in Edmonton, Alberta. The topic of today's session was our new life in Jesus Christ. And we heard from Denver Archbishop, the Most Reverend Charles Chaput. Archbishop Chaput emphasized that we cannot be halfway Christians, but we must fully live a new life in Christ. The witness talk was provided by and Light TV producer Mary Rose Bacani, who reflected on three powerful calls she experienced in life that drew her deeper into her faith and deeper into her relationship with the Lord. For more information on the Nothing More Beautiful series, you may visit the Edmonton Archdiocesan website caedm.ca. That's the Catholic Archdiocese of Edmonton, C-A-E-D-M and click on the Nothing More Beautiful link where you can also watch videos of all the sessions. Nothing More Beautiful also airs on Salt and Light television and the new season begins again in November. To listen to any part of this broadcast that you may have missed or to download any Salt and Light radio program, visit our website, saltanlighttvorg slash radio. All messages can be sent to radio at and to read our blog, visit saltandlighttv.org slash blog. I'm Pedro Guevara Man. Thank you for being with us. We'll talk to you next time. This is Salt Light Radio, the summer edition.